Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And today, we're lucky to have Ken Billingsley, author of Entrepreneur to Millionaire. And don't you think you need to change that title to Entrepreneur to Billionaire? Because anymore, it seems like nobody cares about being a millionaire, even though 99% of the people aren't. They're like, Shane, if I'm not a billionaire, what does it all mean at the end of the day? So we're thrilled to have you here today. So, um, Kent, give us a little bit about your background first. Tell us about your background. Yeah, and I, I actually want to answer that question. Why not billionaire? Mark asked me, he goes, well, why don't you teach people how to become billionaires? And I said, I haven't done that yet. I've, uh, I've made a lot of people millionaires and multimillionaires, and I've got a roadmap I can prove. Um, but that, uh, that, that next level, billionaires, and, and besides, it, if tens of thousands of entrepreneurs and business owners had seven figures in the bank right now, COVID wouldn't be a problem. They don't have money in the bank, and and COVID is a nightmare because of cash flow and things like that. But uh, anyway, yeah, to answer your question, um, I, I was actually in the corporate world uh, half my career, about 20 years, half my uh, career, 20 years uh, building companies and helping entrepreneurs and CEOs. And back in about 1995, inside an organization called EDS, which was owned by General Motors, um, the leadership had come to me and, and I was working on mega deals, anything above 500 million, average about a billion. I was doing Salesforce automation and um, uh, Salesforce optimization and transformation. And they asked me to put together a team and go back into the business units, the strategic business units, and find out, um, are there ways to uh, grow revenue and sales faster, be more consistent? And, and above all, be more profitable. How, how can the business units actually make more money? And I, I formed a team of experts, inside and outside experts, which using outside experts was kind of frowned upon. But we went back into business units, Mark, and, and the, big, the big aha after spending a year inside the business units and finding tens of millions of dollars in new sales and revenue and even profits was they, they lived or their, their mantra was more for more. So, so how do we, uh, you know, we have to spend money to make money. We have to hire more people. We have to do more marketing. We have to do all these things to generate the top line. And for the leader, their leadership team and my team, it was, yes, you're, you're, you're achieving growth, but you're buying that growth and you're eating profits and what I call wealth inside a business. And so I did that for a few years, got promoted up to a chief marketing officer, chief strategy officer of a billion dollar uh, unit uh, operating out of Asia, out of Hong Kong. And then I came back, built out a software company in the last almost 20 years now. I've uh, been helping build out uh, startups to transforming billion dollar organizations. So that, that's my background and, and what I've been doing. Okay. And, and so why did you name your business the Revenue Growth Company? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's actually the value proposition. Because uh, instead of trying to grow businesses, instead of trying to make your businesses bigger, um, 
what I want people to learn and, and really what's in my book is how do you grow revenue? How do you scale revenue against your assets? Uh, for example, um, most companies don't need more clients. They need to generate more revenue from existing clients. Uh, they don't need more salespeople. They need their salespeople to optimize to scale two, three, five x what they're doing today. Um, they don't. They don't need more products or services. They need to learn how to generate more revenue per product or service. And I can go on and on and on. That's called scaling revenue against an asset. When you do that, you eliminate a lot of costs. You eliminate a lot of things that eat profit and and take away the potential wealth. And, and to give you an example of that area, very few people actually know the cost of having a single salesperson. Most CFOs don't even know. There are actually eight categories of costs associated with a salesperson. Now, uh, if you're in B2B in some of these uh, markets, you have to have salespeople. If you're in complex sales, you have to have salespeople. But, there, but these eight categories of cost eat up and chew through profits and potential earnings that could be going back into the company or could be going into bonuses and money for uh, the employees, stakeholders, and owners. So that gives me the next question about your book, and then we're going to dive directly into the book, is what are the three things you would like readers to walk away with, and why should they get the book? Yeah, the, the, the biggest message of all is every single business. Now, I've been inside oh gosh, uh, several thousand companies and every single business, literally everybody on the call today that runs a business, uh, they could actually double and triple their sales, revenue, or profits using the resources that they have today. That, that, that is the ultimate message that you don't need to spend any more money, any more time, burn any more resources, and you could generate more sales, revenue, and profits if and here's the key. You don't have to work harder or smarter. You're still working. You've got to wake up the sleepy areas of your business. You've got to wake up those areas that aren't working for you, uh, that are just kind of exist, and turn those on to where those areas of your business and all areas of your business actually create demand and then help convert that demand into new cash clients and contracts. Well, what are what are those areas that are overlooked typically? Yeah, the uh, the 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 big ones that, that that burn resources and waste money and and I mean just so easy to go fix is one of them is targeting targeting and that is who who are your perfect clients who who is that client uh, that you should have uh, that in your portfolio and and I was doing a live event a couple of weeks ago and and we were talking through uh, what is a perfect client who is a perfect client and um, I asked one of the people in the room I, I mean how many in your portfolio, and they said they had 20, 30 clients. I said, how many of those are your perfect clients? They said, only a couple. And I said, why? And they said, well, we don't always get the perfect client. We we have to sometimes take on the, the client that, uh, you know, maybe doesn't pay on time or they're, they're, they're not the best to work with or they don't handle their responsibilities or uh, they blame things on us. I mean, they just went through the litany of what makes a bad client. And I said, well, that's your fault. That's your system that's attracting and filtering the wrong clients. And, and if you can wake up just targeting, just, just simply who your business is trying to attract, if you'll change that and transform that uh, into those that you want uh, in the right demographics, the right psychographics, and the right characteristics, your business can transform right there. And, and, and not only don't you have to spend another dollar or hour doing it, um, you don't have to spend any or even less. 
because and the way I'll say it, I'll just characterize this. Too many companies are trying to win with losers. And what I mean by losers, not not derogatory. I just mean yeah, they're just sure. not the best clients. And 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 if if in targeting and in, in identifying your perfect client profile, you win with winners. I, I, I just sent an email off to a, a potential client. I know he will open the door to five or 10 more clients and I don't have to do any work. I don't have to spend a dollar on marketing or sales. He will open up five or 10 as I can get a program and put things in place for him. Uh, he becomes my marketing and sales organization. That's zero dollars. That That's no time. Yes. So what's the winner client profile? I mean, what's that winner client uh, look like? So, so there, there are three components. So as you're working to identify your perfect client profile, there are three things that you have to look at. And the first one is, and this is the most common one that almost everybody does to some degree, they're just a, usually a little sloppy, is the demographics. And the demographics are the facts or figures, the quantifiable parts or uh, components that say, okay, certain industry, certain size, number of employees, certain locations, uh, certain products or services. These are demographics. And you can research those. You can identify those. You can find those pretty easily on the internet. The, the next set of attributes you have to look at are what I call the psychographics. And this is where um, two things happen. One of them is it's much harder to identify but this is where you make the money or save the money. And, and making the money is just as important as saving the money because that's how you create wealth inside your business. And, and the, and the uh, psychographics are um, how, how does the buyer feel? How does the pro, uh, prospect think and feel about where they are? What is their mental construct? Um, how, what emotions do they go through to make decisions or go through change? And it's so critical that you have those because it's interesting. Uh, emotions are the motivator. E emotions are those things that trigger the actions. It's not the logic. It's not the, oh yeah, we need your product or service or this is important. It's that here's why I have to have it. Here's why emotionally I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. I'm upset. Or I'm, I'm excited or elated about what uh, the audience's products or services could do. And and the challenge there is you can't buy that. I, I can't, uh, without working with you, I can't tell you what the number one psychographic is until we talk through and understand who are you targeting. Because your, your uh, perfect client profile sets that up to where, uh, for me, and I'll give you an example, um, one of the uh, uh, psychographics I look for is frustration. If you're happy where you are today, if you feel your business is making enough sales, revenue, and profits, then you don't need me. You don't have a problem. You're probably not frustrated or disappointed. If you are, if you do have that emotion, there's a good chance you're willing to change or do things differently. That sets up a perfect client profile. The third one, the third part of this is what I call characteristics. And, and this is where not all clients are good clients. There, there are those clients out there that, that everybody, if you've been in business six months, you probably have one that you just go, I love these guys. I, I love, I love, I love how they communicate. I love their transparency. I love their willingness to handle their responsibilities. Uh, they don't beat us up on price. They don't try to over negotiate with us. They pay on time. I mean, you can just go through those characteristics. They're the dream client. They're the dream client. And my whole point is build your business to attract and filter dream clients. The filtering part is, is really critical. Um, you've got to say no to people. And, and the way I say no is, uh, tell me how bad you wanna change. Tell me how bad you wanna build a system to create wealth. 
And, and if they can't articulate their willingness to want to do that, I, there's not a fit. I'll send them off to a training company or I'll send them off to get some coaching. But, I, but if, you're, if, if, if you're willing and, and have that uh, uh, desire, that burning desire to transform your business, then we might be a good fit because you've got the problem I can solve. So that, those are the, um, the, what I call the characteristics of the profile of your perfect client profile. I can't tell you what it is for your company. This is what you have to work through to develop. And, and, and it, it, I equate this or I characterize it. This is like the, the, the head of a golf club, whether you play golf or not. If you're off one degree, you're out of bounds. You can't win. If you're off by one degree, you're going to hit the ball out of bounds. You can't, you can't win the game. And that's why targeting is so important. Plus, your targeting sets up almost every decision after that. Your targeting sets up every decision in sales and marketing after that. With ineffective targeting, I can almost guarantee you your marketing and sales is an activity or, or a spend, not an investment. You, you mentioned in your book, you say that um, growth and greater revenue don't always translate into um, optimizing your product, uh, uh, optimized profit production. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and uh, I'll give you a statistic, and this one's uh, just absolutely frightening. Working for, you know, I've been doing this for literally 25 years. I've been running my own company for 20 years. 98% of all businesses, entrepreneurs, especially small businesses, struggle with cash. They don't have enough cash on hand. They have inconsistent cash flow. Uh, they have almost no working capital, and, and they're dealing with lagging receivables or collections. 98%. That was pre-COVID. That, that was pre-COVID. Uh, in COVID, the, the numbers are, are just absolutely frightening and destroying companies. And, and the reason for that is, um, as business leaders, and, and some of you are really guilty of this, uh, you're, you're spending so much on sales and marketing to create that top line, to attract clients, to convert clients. Uh, you're spending so much. You're writing these big checks for SEO. You're writing these uh, big checks to advertising firms and PR and your banner ads. I mean, you're just writing all these checks, but that's not an investment. That's a spend. And so if you get the growth, you, you can never optimize the wealth your business should be making. And, and, and so you've got to go through the process, and I, I call it a roadmap. You've got to go through the roadmap to make sure you're making an investment. So you're spending the least amount of time, money, and resources generating the highest level of growth possible. I, let me give you an example. It's just so real time. Yesterday, working with a team, uh, we were strategizing through the pipeline. This is the pipeline acceleration I talk about in chapter, I don't know, 9, 10, or 12. Um, and we were talking through a thousand dollar contract. Now that's not a big one for this company. Their average is probably three or four hundred thousand. We were talking through the contract, and as we worked through the value proposition, it became clear that they had a compelling ROI for a half million dollar contract. But they were willing to initially settle, and they wanted me to help them convert this hundred thousand dollar contract. And, and they were like, "Well, let's just get it off the pipeline. Let's get it through." And I said, "Well, wait a minute." Let's talk through this and let's let's identify the layers of the value proposition, the business case, to see what this would really do for your client. And as after about a 20-minute conversation, this, this contract now is worth about half a million, and it is absolutely more compelling than the $100,000 contract they thought they were selling. So now all of a sudden, that's four more contracts they don't have to sell, sales cycles, or, or more sales support, more sales resources, more sales management. Um, 
That's four more $100,000 contracts that could be consummated in one agreement. And so the, the, the point here is um, getting bigger is, is neither better or, or good because it never optimizes. Now, if you can scale against an asset, if you can make your contracts bigger, if you can make them uh, with, sell them with higher margin, uh, if you can convert them faster. And another thing that most people don't understand is speed is a very critical part of this game. And so I wrote a whole chapter on how do you accelerate from contact to contract? How do you compress that time so you actually bring more value to the client? This is not sales training stuff uh, about, about how do you manipulate your client to buy faster. No, this is actually how you um, accelerate the value proposition development with your prospect so that it converts so much faster than it normally would. Two things happen. One of them is if you convert your opportunities faster, you lower your cost of sales, you double your capacity or triple your capacity. Now, all of a sudden, you're getting top line and your bottom line uh, is, is protected. Your, your cost savings, that's how we create that wealth that I'm talking about. Does that does that help, Mark? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I had a, a client in Latin America and uh, they provided ham and Walmart kept trying to do business with them and they kept turning Walmart down. And they had an algorithm that basically supplied ham to parts of the world when there was some kind of problem and there was a shortage of ham. And they said they would not supply anybody where they couldn't make a 25% net margin. And that, and so they told, kept telling Walmart for years, and they're a pretty sizable family business, that they had no interest in any business with Walmart because Walmart uh, doesn't allow them to make enough money on it. So that's what they looked at. Here's a question we have uh, from the audience. Frustrated people are angry and scared of things uh, are going to go wrong. If you're targeting frustrated clients, don't you risk getting their bad vibe and putting yourself in the position of being a target of anger generated elsewhere and nothing to do with you? Well, the the answer to the question, as I understand the question is, what is the root cause or foundational issue of their frustration? In, in, in other words, uh, why are they frustrated? I mean, th there are just people that are only happy when it rains. That, that, that's, that's not a perfect client profile. And so what we're looking for here is you're, you're looking, and, and, I'll, and I'll, sh I'll expand that even further because this is a very important point too. There's both um, negative or, uh, let me say, positive uh, frustration and negative reasons for frustration. That being said, about two-thirds of the, the people that come to me, they're frustrated uh, with lack of success. They're, uh, things aren't working right. They're, they're sales turnover. Their marketing is not creating demand. Um, their messaging doesn't connect. I mean, they're just they're, they're not happy uh, because things are kind of broken and failing. On the other side, about a third of clients that come to me and they say, Kent, you know what? Uh, we're doing really well. 40% compounded growth, 50%. They're saying, we think we could be at 100%. What could we do differently? What could we accelerate? We're frustrated that we're not maximizing our potential. Uh, those are two sets of the same emotion frustration, but they're different perspectives. And, and as you're um, filtering and qualifying your perfect client profile, you have to understand the root cause of their emotions. Are they excited about the potential or are they frustrated with what they, they're missing? Uh, different emotions uh, trigger different responses. 
And, and this is why it's so critical. And I want to share with your audience here, how do you do that? Um, how, how do you uncover and discover the psychographics? And, and, and it's like there's some mystery. It's not. You ask. How do you feel about the situation you're in right now? Uh, what has you excited about the potential? Uh, where where does uh, your frustration come from? Does your whole team feel that way? Uh, it's interesting. I, and <laughs> it, when I have uh, uh, women and men in the room, men are men really struggle with this whole part of talking about feelings and and emotions and things like that. Where I think women do an amazing job. Uh, men have to step it up and get a lot better at this because at the end of the day, it, it, it's all about how your uh, prospect thinks and feels about where they are and why they're there, and then what you can do for them. You, you, uh, and you talked a little bit about this so far, but you say uh, it's faulty when people are saying you have to spend money to make money. What, what, what's the problem with that statement that you've been hearing for as long as there's been business, right? <laughs> I've been told that for 40 years. Yeah, so the first premise is spend. And, and that's flawed in, it, in just itself. You, you have to invest to get a return. What happens is, and I'll, I'll just play that out of, you have to spend money. So we take that as entrepreneurs, business owners, and we think, oh, I've got to spend on marketing. Oh, I've got to spend on sales. Oh, I've got to spend on new materials. I've got to spend on my website. I've got to spend. And, and you have to step back and realize that there's a high correlation when you spend, you buy activities or you buy something that's different, but not something that's better. And, and so it's very critical that you turn that spend into an investment. Well, how do you do that? Well, for to, to make sure that your sales and marketing dollars, and if you've got a business, that can also be your time, to make sure that's an investment, you have to go through a process and a sequence. You've got to go through uh, and check your company and say, is my business revenue ready? Is, have I gone through the steps and processes to make sure I could, I'm in position, my business, my model, my revenue streams are all in position to generate as much revenue as possible? The second one is you have to then work through market ready is my targeting and my messaging and all the principles and components of being market ready. Are these all in place? And it's that second phase market ready that, that most people just simply skip, billion dollars skip. They just they leapfrog from, um, I've got a product or service, I got to get it to market, I got to go sell it, I got to go get money back. We're under such stress and pressure to generate dollars and sales that we skip steps. And and I literally. And what are the common steps that yeah, they uh, miss? Well, well targeting's the, the 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 absolute worst. Tar targeting, because, and I'll just say it when I, and I, I wish I could interact with everybody on the call today, but if I said, what is your number one? Uh, perfect client profile psychographic, people can't tell me. They, they simply can't tell me. And, and I'll get the, well, I didn't even know what psychographics were. <laughs> and so it's, it's even an awareness level. Um, but then I'll say, okay, so what are your top five characteristics of the client that you love and, and prioritize them? Well, people can't tell me. And I say, okay, so you don't really even understand your buyer and, and your best buyer. Well, where do we go from there? And so that's that's misstepped. And then the second one is um, there's a concept of packaging. And this is how you bundle your products or services so that it both attracts, engages, and converts quickly. And I have a story in the book for any of those that are in have staffing companies or really any kind of company. But by working through those first two phases, I went with a CEO of a staffing company into a, a, a sales call. I, I hate to ever think of them like that, their business meetings. 
And he had me go with him because the, the potential was, was pretty big. And a uh, $5 million staffing company, we went to the meeting and we worked through that process of, of the, the, the packaging and the principles based on the perfect client profile and being revenue ready and knowing we could deliver and all those things. And um, he was hoping in his heart of hearts that we could get maybe a seven-figure contract, a million-dollar contract. Through discussions, and then we went into the whiteboard, and I mean, we, we put on pots of coffee with the prospect. We ended up getting a verbal commitment for a $5 million contract. In one meeting, we doubled the size of the company because we went through that process of talking about uh, what's the what's the fundamental marketplace problem that you want to solve versus what we're trying to sell you to solve. We we started from scratch with the prospect, and it was interesting. It was different than what we had assumed. And and, and so, do you think yeah, people go, go into trying to sell the client as opposed to listening about the problem? Because I, I find that when I go with uh, clients, I just I did something similar to like that with one of my clients. I went into a meeting, and he started immediately trying to sell him. And I said to him, "Let's just call him Jim." I said, um, "I'm just curious before you get we get started briefing him on what we do." I asked the client, "What's the biggest problem that you need uh, you're having right now? Tell us about what you're going through." And then he started doing it. Turned out we had like four different opportunities. Just him outlining it. Do you find that's a, a big problem a lot is that people go right into the sales so, so two things one of them is they they go into sales mode and there's so many training companies today they're teaching people not to go into sales mode they're putting in more what i call market survey mode and and there's this is dangerous where you start asking the client a lot of questions and now the next big one is now you start challenging the client or prospect with questions and i'm like stop it I've been an I've been an executive at the top of a billion dollar company. If you came in there trying to sell me or doing a market survey, we're we're done in the first few minutes. I just don't have time. I should have been in three other meetings. And 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 so when you when you walk through my door, if you're trying to sell something, you better deliver value. You better come through the door and share with me. Uh, here are the challenges that other companies like mine are having. Here's how they've tried to solve them. And, and here's why those typical solutions don't work. And, and here's some different approaches. I want to explore with you where you are, how you framed your problem. And is it a symptom or a root cause? Because at the end of the day, all I care about is solving your problem, whether you buy from me or not. When I can deprogram salespeople and teams to think that way, they, they, well, I've got a client today that they, they were about a 20% win rate. I've got, I've got lots of stories like this. Their win rates were about 20, 25%, which is very typical, very average. Even companies that think they have 50, 60% win rates, when we scrub them, they're about half that. Um, by taking that different approach of, of taking the sales hat off and not putting on the marketing survey hat, but walking through the door with value. Um, and and educating the the prospect on the potential or why things don't work, their win rates consistently now over the last three years have been eighty percent, and their deals are bigger and they don't re- and they don't discount their prices. If you want to give one uh, a piece of advice only for an for an investing or a B to C company, how to do a better um, how to do better filtering, what would that be? So a business to consumer company, I don't know how much experience you have in that. But what would the filtering be to make sure you're you're putting your efforts in with the right people? Yeah. So after you go through the uh, your revenue ready and the, your market ready, your targeting, uh, the key part in there is the messaging, and and it's so critical in the messaging that you attract and filter. 
And, um, and, and I'll just, I'll share an example. I was reading another book last night, or I was looking through another book last night to see what all is out there about becoming a millionaire in 12 months. And uh, I'm like, okay. And so I started reading through it and it was all about how to sell on Amazon. And, and so as you dug into it, it was like, yeah, you know, you can make a fortune on Amazon. Here's how I did it. And here's how others have done it. I thought, okay, that's really great. But in my, my subtitle is how to build a highly profitable, fast growth company. I didn't use the word business company because I'm trying to filter out people that are, um, they're, they're trying to do the four hour work week and trying to do these other things. We're on the beach somewhere where they're, they're selling stuff through Amazon. That's fine. I'm not attacking that model or, or even those books. That, if that's your goal and objective, great. I'm trying to connect with people that want to run uh, sustainable businesses where you've got employees, where you've got W-2s, or maybe you have fractional, but you're trying to actually build a company, create wealth, and maybe sell it someday. Two-thirds of our clients end up selling because their, their company valuation, even if they're a small firm with two people, their company valuation gets to a point where they, they, they said that it's so worth it to sell and, and then retire or go start another company. Um, but it's very important in your messaging to answer your question is you help people understand who doesn't fit as well as who does fit. Yeah, I agree with you. you you've been friends with Mark Cuban since college. Am I right about that? We actually, uh, we went to the same college. We met, uh, we met in a parking lot in Dallas. I was getting some stuff out of my car and I had an Indiana shirt on, a t-shirt. And, and this guy walks by and he goes, hey, my name is Mark. I went to Indiana and we shook hands and we've now been lifelong friends. That was 1981, 82. So almost scarily, that's 40. Yeah, where did it go? Yeah, I'm the same age as you. I wonder where did it go? <laughs> I know because I'm only 42 years old, right? So yeah, of course <laughs> you're, you're still that. Now, what did he focus on as a business of philosophy that has made him an enormous success, which relates to the concept that you talk about in the book, fundamental marketplace problem. Yeah. So uh, one of the principles in the in the chapter is, and this is absolutely foundational. If you're starting a business or you have a business, you've got to go back and frame this concept because in many cases it evolves or has changed or been satiated, satisfied. Um, the fundamental marketplace problem is the reason for being. What what is broken in the marketplace that creates a gap or an opportunity to be solved or served? And, and then the next step, which, which this is how you create wealth inside of businesses, the next step is not to form a business to offer a solution like everyone else. The next step is create the model that offers something different than everybody else. So when you can identify a, a, a problem or potential opportunity in a marketplace, you then want to say, what's the right model to solve this? I'll give you a personal example. I try to use all kinds of examples, large corporations, clients, my personal examples. I was interviewed the other day by a, a consulting uh, a podcast group, and they were all consultants, and they wanted to know, uh, how would you apply the FMP to consulting? And I said, well, back 20 years ago, when I started my business, I didn't use the typical model of, I'll come in and do a project for three to six months, charge you $100,000, and then be gone, or, or stay around for another six months, charge you another $100,000 for implementation. I said, uh, for businesses under $10 million, they, they can't afford that, that kind of money. And so I created a model where I'm on retainer to where uh, I let your needs, I let your challenges, what you're trying to fix, I let that be the driver of, of the hammer versus 
whatever you're doing, you're a nail and you need my hammer. That, that's the sales world. And I went through and I said, I do other things that are counter to the typical uh, consulting model because I, to me, it's flawed. Um, I, I give away my intellectual property. I share my methods, my tools, my formulas. I mean, that, that's heresy in the consulting world. So, so I don't do projects and I don't, uh, I don't uh, hold on to my uh, black box of IP like it's prison food. I actually share it. I, I give it away and people will say, oh my gosh, you give your stuff away, then um, you're not going to have any business. You'll run out of business. I found just the opposite. P people love the tools and the templates. They say, how do I get more? How do I stay in your programs? My average client today in our high intensity programs has gone from six to nine months to, I have some that have been in it seven years, 10 years in our programs. In, in a retainer-based relationship. And what does that do? Well, now I'm back to creating wealth. I don't have to spend sales and marketing dollars attracting more clients because we retain the clients in, I hope, forever, as long as I can do this. So um, that's what I want your uh, audience to understand is uh, as you attract and engage clients, how can you keep them forever? How, how can you create, uh, continue to create things to help uh, offer them? And so it, it's interesting. So the FMP that might bring me in is they have a sales problem challenge or a marketing problem challenge or a growth challenge. Um, in many cases, that, that's not the root cause. That's the symptom. And I find it over in operations or I find it in strategy or I find it in leadership. So I find it in another area and I provide templates and tools to fix that area, which since ends up fixing the sales area. Now, all of a sudden, their sales is growing. They have a different challenge. Now it's like, well, how do we bring on more sales talent? How do we optimize the talent? Or how do we... How do we market more effectively than just digital activities? So your FMP, your fundamental marketplace problem is your reason for being, and it's why someone will buy from you. And then your model is why they will buy from you versus anyone else. And you absolutely must answer those questions and do it with your team, or if you're a solopreneur, do it with your spouse or partner or whomever. You've got to talk through those questions and say, Here's how I frame the problem in the marketplace. Here's what I see I'm trying to solve. Here's how everybody's doing it. Here's how I want to attack it differently. And in the book, I go through, and I've gotten a lot of feedback. People love, love, love uh, these examples, I think, because everybody loves pizza. I talk about how the pizza industry actually started and then how it's evolved and how new entry entrants have come into the, the pizza uh, uh, marketplace, which is like almost $40 billion today. How do you come in and get a piece of that when the market seems saturated, not just their cheese? So how do you uh, penetrate that market and still make money? And, and so that's how you craft that different model. And, and I really need people to read that and then and go, okay, so how is my model different? And then how, how have I evolved to not be me too? Now, and, and somebody asked me the other day, what's the difference between a small business owner and an entrepreneur? And I said, a small business owner offers the same services as everybody else. Entrepreneur looks at the problem and goes, I can do it differently. I, I can I can offer a different approach, a different means or method to solving the problem in a faster, better, or smarter way. That's an entrepreneur. And that's that's what. Yeah, I, I agree with you that people have to think about how to truly differentiate yourself. I have somebody I'm working with that has a home healthcare business, and when you looked at her brochure, it looks like other a hundred other home healthcare businesses. And so I said, what's really unique about what you're offering? You know, like if if she's advertising it. I said, maybe you should be advertising that you have home healthcare workers that are sports fans or movie buffs. And so that, that way you can match your people with uh, the customers. And that way the customer just, just doesn't feel like you just send a body over 
to watch their uh, aging mom or grandmother or whatever. So I, I agree with you with that. How important is having the right product for the right market at the right time to attain the objectives you mentioned in the book? For example, if you're trying to sell banquet services during the pandemic, how using your process and methodology make that business into a huge winner when nobody can go in and use their uh, service? That's a wonderful service. question. And those that have, uh, and, and I, I can't remember all the chapters. I think it's chapter 13, which is called Blueprinting Optimization. And that sounds like kind of corporate speak or corporate gobbledygook, but basically what it means is how do you constantly work at transforming your business to stay relevant to the fundamental marketplace problem? And so on back to that that uh, concept of FMP. Well, when COVID hit, um, the FMP changed, and and in many cases it it went virtual. And and so uh, companies that were already working on that pre-COVID are doing pretty well today. The, those that stayed in their old model, I use a lot of examples of restaurants because we all go out to restaurants. Those that stayed in their single revenue stream lane, walk-in traffic. And, and, and then we're either had to close or shut down or partially shut down. They've, they've been wiped out. I heard, um, oh, I'm trying to think, it, um, I think it was Texas that a thousand um, restaurants are closing forever every day. A thousand restaurants are closing every day. And, and we go back and look at them and say, well, they all didn't need to close or have to close, but because their model was not flexible uh, to offer other uh, revenue streams such as um, uh, delivery or um, takeout or um, the big one, catering. If they didn't have those revenue streams in place, they couldn't play catch up. If you didn't have those business relationships and structure and model to do catering pre-COVID, I, I mean, it, it was just almost impossible to do it during COVID. And so this goes back and very important. And this is how the parts all connect. And, and this this is another key point that I want the audience to take is you, you don't do this in isolation. You don't do uh, like, okay, I've done my targeting. I'm all done. No, you've got to do your targeting, your packaging, your messaging, your pricing in, in market ready. Uh, as the FMP uh, has evolved or is evolving and every fundamental marketplace problem eventually gets solved or goes away. And, and I want to, I want to stop right there because that's one of those that if, if you don't own anything else today in your notes, own that one. The FMP you were solving or solving today will eventually go away. And, and, and if you don't prepare for that, if you don't plan for that, and I do a whole chapter on, you absolutely must be planning that what you're counting on to be successful today is not going to be there in one, three, or five years. And, and what would you do with your model to prepare for that? Uh, I, I have a lot of friends that are uh, there's keynote national speakers that that's their whole gig. They can't get on an airplane. Their their whole business model has been wiped out. So to further answer your question, Mark, I don't think I answered um, those companies that were doing banquets and events. So here's what's interesting: people are still getting married, and 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 so now how do we do virtual weddings? How do we do uh, virtual get-togethers? How do we do the virtual um, uh, uh, pre-dinner? How do we do those things? And, and the cool thing about the value proposition is that could leave you a lot more money to put on the ring or the honeymoon or the house you want to buy or whatever else, but you still want to hold the event 
And what you have to do in your model is say, we're the experts at holding virtual events, and this is how we bring in your family. Uh, this is how we Zoom call. This is how we record it to create the portfolio. I mean, I could just go through the diatribe of here's here's who we target. Here's the packages we offer. Uh, here's the uh, messaging of the value proposition. Here's the pricing uh, structure to get you started uh, or to have the, the most you know, the worldwide virtual wedding. So the bottom line is you just have to adjust to the situation and pivot your business and have to take a look at what the what the the current set of circumstances has provided a whole new uh, set of opportunities. I, I, and when I was reading Gone with the Wind, uh, Red Butler had said in the book that they said, oh my God, the whole South is falling apart. He said, no, now there's all kinds of new opportunities uh, in the South. And he was ticking off the ways he was going to make met business. And Scarlett said, wait a minute, I think I got to get into some of that. And so he just basically, his message was there, anytime things change, that means there's new opportunity and you just have to adjust your business model uh, for that. Uh, are, are there certain processes for selling services that are different than selling products? No, but here's what is there. there and, 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 you know, when people ask me, what's what's the great confusion in sales? What, what's most broken about sales? Almost everybody always answers is something about sales skills or sales training or sales approach. And and it's not. The, the greatest confusion, and I, I, I'll give you a little background. I've, I have designed, built, turbocharged over a thousand sales organizations from first hire to literally having thousands of salespeople in complex sales doing very large contracts. The, the number one issue and challenge is that there are two kinds of sales. There are two sales environments with kind of a hybrid or combination as a, as a third. Um, and, and this is where how, how unknown is this or how, uh, how little do people are conscious of the fact there are actually two sales environments. And this is one thing that destroys most small businesses. They don't understand there's two sales environments. Um, Less than 1% of sales managers, because I've taken the polls and I've, I've been in the rooms with them, less than 1% of sales managers can articulate the two different sales environments. They are, they and their team and company are set up for not just success, but absolutely sub-optimization. They, they are set up to burn a fortune in sales and marketing dollars and never come close to their potential. So let me explain those because I, I, I'm hoping you want to know. Uh, the first one is what's called a simple sale. It's a transaction sale. It, it, it's a, um, a single buyer, single decision, single step, and more, most importantly, single set of emotions. And, and you can have products uh, in, uh, I, I, you never want to say, well, that's all product sales. Not actually. Um, there are uh, product sales that don't fit in there. Big ticket product sales, large product sales, uh, uh, massive product sales that take a long time to purchase. So that, that's the first one. And, and, and for example, if you're in retail, or, or you're in um, uh, where you have retail traffic or you're selling certain products or services, you could be in simple sales. There is nothing wrong. This is not judgmental. This is just how the world is wired. Um, and so in simple sales, you, you know, you're going to make it on transactions and your turns and things like that. And, and so you can make fortunes uh, in that world. Um, however, uh, there, there's another environment, which is called complex sales. And complex sales basically means there's going to be a combination of multiple steps, multiple buyers, multiple decisions, and multiple emotional constructs. And, and not understanding the two and how certain strategies 
will work in one will absolutely fail you in the other and not how to commingle those is absolutely destructive. So here's a great example of that. And, and who, whether anybody's in retail or not, if you're, if you're, you have a retail product or, or, or for example, uh, I have a, I have a book and I go to a bookstore and I say, Hey, you're not carrying my book. Would you carry my book? And they say, well, yeah, we're the owner. We're independent. Uh, we like your book. We'll carry your book. That's a simple sale. Now, if I, if I were going to Costco or Walmart or a major chain, I am now in the middle of the ocean. I am in a complex sale. There's going to be uh, barriers, hurdles, committees, groups, organizations that, that want me in and don't want me in. Uh, now, all of a sudden, it's going to be very complex. Most sales in B2B and B2G, business to uh, government, are complex sales. So you could have a business where you're in both. And, and, and so where you're in the simple sale, that's great. But if you're in the complex sale, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. In the book, I use an example. This is very important. I need you to read this so that you understand this. Uh, a friend of mine had opened a, a, a chain of sandwich shops. And I talked through the challenges and frustrations and everything. And he did his homework. And he bought into a great um, um, franchise. And he had, he had, I mean, he had done the due diligence off the charts. But he never predicted, and it wasn't in the scenario or the planning, that what happens on a rainy night? What happens when a school bus of kids show up and they're out of, out of French fries or something? I mean, the world blows up. So we talked for a while and he goes, Ken, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to get my stores open. I said, is that your greatest stress or frustration? Here we are talking about emotions now. He said, uh, well, yeah, it's getting the stores open. I said, well, let me ask you, isn't your greatest uh, fear or frustration right now, your ability to pay back the investors? And he goes, yeah, yeah. Now that, now that you mentioned it, that, that's what keeps me up at night. And I said, do your investors care where your money comes from? Do your investors check that each time you open a store and when you hit your eighth store that you're going to get your payback? And he goes, well, I think they do. And I said, really? And he said, you know, they don't. I said, great. Have you uh, have you tried catering? Have you gone to outside businesses and offered uh, uh, to uh, companies um, for events or lunches or things? Have you tried that? He said, yeah. You know, and, and he started to talk to me. He goes, yeah, we've done a few of those. And I said, well, how were they? He goes, they're actually really great. He goes, he goes, we can predict it. We can plan it. I know the staff that's required. I know the materials. I mean, he just, he just went down through this litany of everything that had him excited. And I said, great. Why don't we do more of those? And he, and then all of a sudden he, he got out of his paradigm. Of, I have to open stores. You know, like a lot of us are in these paradigms. You've got to get out of, he goes, I don't have to open stores. I could do catering. And I said, okay, but this is going to come with a big warning. Your, your stores, are simple sales. People walk in, they buy a sandwich and they leave. Or they eat it and they leave, I guess. Um, when you start calling on companies, you're now dealing with committees and groups, organizations, even planners and all that kind of stuff. You're in a complex sale. You, you have to understand how to navigate through a complex sale. And your business, your website, your materials, your information, your sales competencies, all must be designed for that complex sale. Or you'll hit some on occasion but you're going to burn a fortune in time, money, and resources getting on. And this is where, um, th th or this is why, and I'm going to share with the audience, if you've had this experience, I, I mean, I could see people will cry just through their pictures, whether they're live or not. Uh, this is why 98% of sales first hires fail. This is why the, the number one uh, come to tears for entrepreneurs is hiring that first salesperson or that second or that third or that fifth. And they can't understand, well, Gosh, you know, a great resume, he's really successful in sales, and he comes over and it's a disaster. 
and 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 now we're not sure how to fire him and we got so much money invested or her uh what do we do and it's like you know we give him nine or 12 months i'm going uh, no you, you should have known before you hired him and if you don't you should have known in the first couple of weeks is there a fit in the environment you're in okay now i want to throw one more curveball in here just to make this fun <laughs> because i've got to teach you how to be successful with your business there's what's called a hybrid or a combination sales environment and that is where a, a uh, and I'll give you an example of this too. This is where a sale could start out as a simple sale and traverse or switch into a complex sale or vice versa. Usually it switches up. It rarely switches down. It does on occasion. What I mean by that is a big ticket, long sales cycle can sometimes switch down to an, uh, an individual saying, you know what, I'm just going to sign off this. I'm going to buy it. Forget the committee. Uh, the heck with the, the group. I'm, I'm going to use my authority. I'm going to push it through. We're done. That can happen on occasion. For every case day like that, I have a thousand that it went the other way. It started off as a simple sale and all of a sudden became a complex sale. And here's an example. Uh, one of our clients in wealth management. Now, they uh, they uh, typically target um, uh, people that have about a million dollars to invest. And um, every once in a while, the way it happens is the person comes in, maybe brings their spouse or not uh, for a million dollars. A lot of people, that's, hey, that's play money. Here's here's my million. Put it in your thing and see what you can do in your system. Well, on occasion, someone will come in and they'll start talking. And as I've worked with this client, uh, the person might say, well, you know what? I'm using two other uh, wealth management firms. I'm thinking about pulling all my money over. I've got five million or 10 million I want to put into your model. But I've got to bring in my accountant. I've got to bring in my estate planner. My spouse needs to be in the room. And now all of a sudden, it just triggered into a complex sale. Multiple steps, multiple people, multiple decisions, multiple emotional constructs. And, and one of the biggest things I've been helping that company learn is how do we show flexibility and agility to move to that complex sale without blowing it? Because most sales teams or business owners, they get frustrated with, oh, okay, well, I now got to meet with them and I got to meet with them. And now all of a sudden, what could have happened in a meeting now is going to take two to three to six months. That, that just makes a lot of people's heads explode. Well, you've got to design your business for that. And back to the sequence that I give you in the bookmark is preparing your business to collapse that complex sale, to make it easy for the buyer to buy. And I'll just go ahead and share this with you. And I can just go on for days. I oh, have okay. another question related there. to we'll, the sales I'll come back. Go ahead, Mark. What do you want? So I think one of the biggest problems everybody has, especially entrepreneurs when they're hiring salespeople, is what's the right profile you should be looking for and what kind of questions should you be asking these folks when you're hiring them? Yeah, Because you said, look, this person had somebody for nine months and you said, hey, they should have known before they hired them if they were the right person. So when you're putting together a profile, what's the ingredients of the profile and Maybe what are the one or two most important questions to ask when you're interviewing? Yeah, so one of them, uh, my clients tell me one of the most important things they ever learn from me is they stop hiring resumes, personalities, people, and social media accounts. They stop it. That's how most people hire. The history, the resume, the background, they, they, that's how they hire. That, that, is, that is no predictor of future results. Matter of factly, uh, I, I declare uh, resumes today as the uh, greatest form of false advertising there is out there, even more so than politicians. The, the resume is, uh, the, 
<laughs> but but I have I actually have been in meetings where I actually know the background, I know the person, I know the company, and I see a resume, and I go, that wasn't your title or role. I don't say it like that. I just let them I let them walk themselves into the trap to where title inflation and results inflation. Now, were you, did you do that or were you part of a team? Oh, okay, so you were part of a team that did that, not you. So so how do you do that? How do you get through the clutter? And you don't need to do four hour interviews and and However you source them, I'm agnostic, whether you use recruiters, you find them, um, you, you bring on people from whatever institution or association you're part of. Where you find them, I don't care. Um, but first of all, they need to be talent. And um, talent uh, has what are called proven competencies. And I expand this out in the book because as a business owner, as a business leader, you absolutely must own the understanding between the difference of skills and competencies. Because it's competencies that are going to predict success in the future. Skills are things you can do. Skills is PowerPoint. Skills is uh, I can uh, uh, I can uh, uh, send an email. I, I can do that. Competencies are clusters of skills applied effectively to produce consistent results. So skills are things I can do. All right. Competencies are clusters of skills. So I'm going to give you an example because I think it's always important to have an example of this. Um, uh, to put together a PowerPoint presentation is a kind of a skill, maybe a competency, but kind of a skill, right? Um, to hold an effective, compelling boardroom presentation requires 15 skills. That's a cl- that's a cluster. That's a competency. And, 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 and so understanding how to do that. So now what does all that mean? That's what you have to interview for. You have to interview for competencies. So I, I use what I call a lot of behavioral-based interviewing techniques to explore for competencies and how they were applied. Walk me through how you developed uh, or walk me through a situation where uh, you won a major deal. What was your strategy? What did you craft to do that? Walk me through uh, an opportunity that you failed, that you didn't win. Walk me through what were the wrong strategies or what, what happened that went wrong? Uh, what were the mistakes made? And, and so what you're trying to do is uncover. This is the absolute, I don't have a better way to do this because the, the being able to prove competencies and see, first of all, you can't cut and paste the answers. People can't make this up. That's the first thing. You've got to eliminate the, the fluff and stuff and things that they're, they're masters of interviewing today because they've memorized these lines and all that, but you can't make uh, behavioral-based answers. And, and so walk me through a time, tell me about a situation, give me insights into how you do X. Uh, that's what lets you know if they have that competency or not. And, and what's really important is that uh, provable competencies are the greatest predictor of future performance. Provable competencies are the greatest predictor of future performance. And, and, and I just want to share with the team, because a lot of you are not hiring W-2 employees. You're using fractional employees. Do the same thing uh, for, those, for those companies you hire, like my, my PR firm and my marketing firm, my SEO firm. I, I actually talked through with them. I interviewed them for competencies. Because you have to make sure as a small business or medium size or even large, you can't afford a single mishire. You, you can't get it wrong. The margin for error, the cost, and the time uh, will destroy you creating wealth inside your business. Yeah, Mark. I agree with you about the process. Um, I, that's what I say, too. If um, somebody's hiring me, I tell them, let me walk you through the process we're going to go through uh, uh, so they understand that. Uh, here's a question for you. You said for B2C businesses, messaging is really important 
for filtering, could you please give tips on how to create clear messages which will be honest, effective, but not too alienating? Yeah, and uh, it all starts with your FMP, your target audience, and that that should then uh, create what's called your value proposition. And and um, you know, it's interesting that that language or those those two words have been around since about 1985. Value proposition. They're still not well understood in business. But your value proposition is how you solve a problem uniquely and satisfy the conflict inherent to the problem. Okay, I just gave you a lot of stuff there. Let me unpack that. Yeah, let me unpack yeah. that. What I'm saying is, um, uh, I'll, I'll use me as an example, because if I use other companies, then people go, well, that's not my company. But but the, the problem, the FMP today is, how do you grow and scale revenues, profits, and um, uh, 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 sales without spending money? that's the fundamental marketplace problem. We're coming out of COVID today and, and I'm in Texas. So we open up next Wednesday. Businesses open up whether you wear a mask or not. And I don't want to get into politics, but they're open. The problem is, the fundamental marketplace problem is now companies are going to have to try and figure out how to grow, how to message, how to how to deliver. And they don't have any money to do it. They, they, they burned all their money trying to survive. So how do they create that? Well, that's a fundamental marketplace problem. And the value proposition says that's what, uh, you're going to have to figure out how to do. That's what's in my model, and and so I'm, I I use that. And if you go to my website, please sign up for my blogs. Go to my website. Everything is centered around that message. How do you make money without spending money? Um, and then I talk about um, uh, then you know you've got to invest. Now, don't hear me that well. You can't spend any time or any money. Yes, you can scale, but you still need to invest. So it's very important to let people know who you're looking for and who you're not looking for. And, and it, it's okay. And you've got to do that in your messaging, uh, oral, written, uh, your website. And, 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 and in many cases, to answer the further answer, the question is put out there, um, here's the type of client we're looking for. Here, here's the type of client that fits in our programs. And I'm, I'm very upfront about uh, if you don't have the will, any way will do. But if you've got the will, if you're if if you've experienced the frustration or all that, then then we've got something for you. Um, but the point here is it doesn't need to be clever or fancy or uh, marketing gobbledygook. It just needs to be real clear on at the front of your website is um, here's our value proposition and and here's who this fits for best. Hey, Kent, I've got one more question for you because we're running out of time here. If there's one mistake that failing entrepreneurs make, that is avoidable. What is that? Yeah. So an, another one of these myths that you just absolutely have to throw away from last century is this one. If you start, run, and grow a business, you're going to be successful, you're going to make money, and you're going to create wealth with that business. That That is a complete and total lie. Uh, I was just talking to somebody earlier today. I said, we're going to move you off your core competency of delivering and I'll share this with you because I won't share the name of the company. I never do, but they're in the benefits space. And I said, we're going to augment your core competency today. And that core competency is that you deliver uh, cost-saving benefit programs to your client. We're going to augment that. I don't, I don't want to remove off that because he offers world-class services and solves a problem. But what we've, we've got to do is augment that. Your new core competency has to be and learn how to create wealth doing it. In other words, how to generate sales revenue and profits without spending more money, time, or resources doing it. And so the number one thing, if I could get if I could get your audience to own this is, 
I've, I've, I, instead of just starting running and growing a business and hoping for success, you now have to design your business for success to make money so you can be around, so you can hire more people, and so you can deliver your value proposition to the marketplace. If you never learn how to create wealth inside your business uh, and, and earn money, then in so many cases, without money, everything's a problem in the business. Well, Ken, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you spending the time with us. I really enjoyed your book. I think uh, based on the comments here, the people said they enjoyed it as well. And I loved your energy. <laughs> and I'm sorry we didn't have enough time to tell us about your experience of being on Shark Tank because they probably would have enjoyed that the most. Well, I hope everybody has a great, safe weekend. And Kent, when you come out with the second book, you have to let us know so we can have you again. Have a great weekend, everybody. Please stay safe. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.